And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here uh, with you. If, you. if you wish, I will make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that this morning you would, you would help me um, to, to handle your word with care, God, to preach truth, and that you would speak through me and guide me. And ask that you would, you would be with each person here, God, and, and guide and minister their hearts. And you would reveal your truth more, more to them. And they would know you better than when they came in. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Now, that verse, after reading that passage, I, I kind of feel like Matthew's pretty much, he's pretty much said it all. So I could just kind of close up shop. You know, we could just be done with a super quick sermon, get an early lunch. Uh, I'm kidding, of course. I know that no one here wants a quick sermon. Right, guys? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I really do love this text. And I love traveling together with you, all, my church family, through this season of Epiphany. And as we've done that, Adam, Adam's been kind of building on this theme of manifestation, of Jesus' real and present ushering in of the kingdom of heaven in the here and now, and what it means for how we live our lives. Or should I say, how we, how we are to lose our lives for Jesus' sake in order that we might find it in him and in his kingdom. After all, that's what Jesus was teaching his disciples in the immediately preceding passages of Matthew. In chapter 16, after the Father revealed it to him, Peter has just made this, this kind of famous confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus revealed to his disciples that he must, he must go to Jerusalem to be killed and resurrected. And that revelation is kind of a turning point in Matthew's gospel account. Jesus is, is kind of heading toward Jerusalem from this point. Up until this time, Matthew's been telling us about Jesus' life from his birth to his baptism to his temptation in the wilderness and then about his, his Galilean ministry 
And now we've come to this point in the book where Jesus finally, finally reveals to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to be killed. And the disciples, they still don't know what to think and what all this means. But he's been revealing himself to them along the way. And he's about to reveal quite a bit more. According to Matthew's account, one of the main things Jesus has been revealing is that the kingdom of heaven is already here. It's this this already not yet kingdom. Sure, the kingdom of heaven will come to full culmination when the Lord returns and finally he writes everything that is wrong in a recreated, this, this recreated new heaven and new earth where we'll dwell together with him for all eternity. That's, that's the not yet part. But Jesus has also been revealing that the kingdom of heaven is already upon us, pressing down into the here and now. We talk about how the, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, they're separated by no more than, than a veil. But since Jesus has come first in his incarnation, the word becoming flesh, that veil has already been giving way. You've got this, this weight of glory manifested on earth, and it's, it's pressing down on this thin veil of separation. The seams are starting to give way. Heaven incarnate kind of seeping through the, the pores or the, the, the weaving gaps, whatever you want to call them, seeping through that veil into earth, here and now as the weight of heaven presses in on it. And we know that later in Matthew, he tells us how the curtain in the temple, it's torn from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross. That was a, a literal tearing that symbolized a reality of that veil of separation further giving way as heaven is breaking through. But we're still dealing with an already not yet reality, even now. Because like we said, the full culmination of the kingdom has not yet come. But it's unfolding. And in Matthew, Jesus has been ushering in the kingdom of heaven throughout the course of his ministry. But when we get to this transfiguration event, something significant is happening here. Jesus gives the disciples a glimpse behind the veil at his full glory, or at least at a a fuller manifestation of that glory. And while I'm on that, I want to point something else out. We had just talked about how when when Jesus died, the, the tearing of the curtain of the temple, it's a literal symbol of a real truth. But this glimpse behind the veil at the transfiguration It's literal as well, but I mean, it's not really symbolic of some other truth. It's a literal look at the real Jesus unveiled in his deity and his glory. We remember that we we just heard the scripture reading about, you know, Moses when he goes up on the mountain back in Exodus. I'm kind of going a little off script here, but remember when he comes down, he's, he's got that they have to put a veil over his face because he's, he's reflecting the light from, from being with God. So even then, it, it just, just for the reflection, they need that veil. But here the disciples, they're not seeing a reflection. They're seeing the real deity of Christ up close and personal. At the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John arguably get about the realest look 
at the real Jesus recorded in all of Scripture. I would say maybe even more than the look John later gets in the Revelation on Patmos, just because that appears to be more of a prophetic vision. And let me clarify when I say that. Uh, When I say that, I don't intend in the least to minimize anything about the reality of the Revelation. But here on the Mount of Transfiguration, John and James and Peter, they physically walk up there with Jesus, just the way you walked in here this morning with your family. And they saw and heard things as real and present as you see and hear me before you today. Maybe only Paul's encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus is really comparable. And we know that that, that encounter ended, ended with you know, knocking Paul clear off his feet, leaving him blind for three days. We see something similar here in our text this morning as Jesus is transfigured before his closest inner circle of disciples. Matthew tells us that Jesus' face shone like the sun, and even his clothes became white as light. We're getting a look at the king of kings. And if that wasn't enough, what else happens? It says that Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus, and they're talking to him. I mean, can you even imagine? The true answer is no, you really can't. I mean, we can try to imagine. I think that's the best we can do. You're walking up here on this mountain with your friend and teacher, who also happens to be the Christ. And you get to the top, and after some time up there, you look up, and he's literally shining like the sun itself, just feet away from you. The light has to be absolutely blinding. And you, you, know, you, you try to shield your eyes and look, look in to see what in the world is going on. And, and you look, and you see Moses and Elijah? They're with Jesus? I mean, one of them left earth almost a thousand years before, and the other well over a thousand years before that. So now you're basically up here seeing ghosts too, I guess. I mean, that's, that's all I would be thinking, I guess. Now before we, we keep walking through the rest of the Transfiguration event, let me say a little more about the appearance of Moses and Elijah here. Now whether you're talking about Jesus or Matthew or the other disciples, or the Pharisees, or the Jewish people, they all directly associated Moses and Elijah with the law and the prophets. And when they, when they talk about the law and the prophets, they're talking about their scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. Of course, it's not the Old Testament to them. So I'll touch a little more on that later, but for now I just wanted to to point it out so that we can kind of keep that significance in mind as we move forward. But like I said before, as far as Peter, James, and John are concerned, at this point they're basically looking at Jesus, transfiguring into this intense blinding light. And they're basically seeing what, what looks to them like some kind of ghost appearing right in front of their eyes. Believe me, these guys would already be terrified at this point. And so would you. Yet, Peter somehow musters the the chutzpah to speak, even though we know from Mark's account that he is indeed already terrified at this point. And Peter says, uh, he says, wow, Jesus, this is, this sure is great. (laughs) You know, do you want me to like set up some tents so y'all can chill here? We kind of tease Peter for his question here. 
But really, I'm just impressed that he could say anything at all. I don't know if any of us would have been able to, as we stood there shielding our eyes from the brightest light we've ever experienced in our entire lives. We're seeing these long-gone saints. Somehow, they're in there too. We'd already be terrified. And then this bright cloud manifests all over and around them. And you hear it. You hear Him. The voice of the Father. And I can only imagine that it, it boomed like the most terrible thunder you could ever dream of. I wouldn't be surprised if it shook the earth under their feet. The unimaginable brightness of the sun basically burning your retinas as the deafening roar of the Father's voice booms into your ears. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Half deaf, half blind. Everything in your being rattled beyond description. You'd probably feel like the very fibers of your being are coming apart, ripping at the seams. Undone as heaven is unveiled. Even this momentary glimpse is more than, than anyone can possibly take, or at least almost take. Matthew says that the disciples fell on their faces and were terrified. Terrified. And I'm telling you, this doesn't just mean they were awestruck. They were awestruck, no doubt, but they were legitimately terrified. And no one could not be. We're talking about the one and only God creator of the universe, all-knowing, all-powerful, and their finite senses are completely overwhelmed by the infinite, omniscient, omnipotent God, and they're cowering in terror. And here it is. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. No one but Jesus only. I think when we think about this passage from the Transfiguration, we come away more than anything with this image of Jesus shining as bright as the sun in this brilliant white light. And we think of Jesus in all His glory, His divinity on full display. And of course, this is the image of the Transfiguration, and we ought to come away with that image. But in so doing, I don't want us to, to lose the image that follows of the Jesus who, who reached out and touched his disciples as they cowered on the ground. The Jesus who spoke tender words of loving encouragement to his disciples as they quivered in terror. Rise and have no fear. It's the Jesus who loves each one of us personally. The image of a Jesus who is not only God, but who is also man. The God-man. Lift up your eyes this morning, and behold, no one but Jesus only. And when we think about how the disciples looked up and they saw no one but Jesus only, we should think about who else had been there. Moses and Elijah, remember we talked a little about them. Remember, when, when they were there and the Father spoke, he told the disciples, listen to Jesus. He didn't say, listen to Moses or listen to Elijah. On these points, the early church father, uh, St. Origen of Alexandria, said, After the touch of the word, they lifted up their eyes, 
They saw Jesus only and no other. Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophet, had become one with the gospel of Jesus. They did not abide as they formerly were. Our minds should go back to what Jesus preached earlier in Matthew in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus declared, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so we see in this unveiling of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, we not only get a, a fuller picture of His glory and His divinity, of Him as the, the King of kings, but we also see a picture of Him as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The law points to no one but Jesus only. The prophets point to no one but Jesus only. All of the law and the prophets are fulfilled, fulfilled in no one but Jesus only. No one but Jesus only is sufficient. Jesus is more than sufficient. He's abundant. Abundant beyond all measure in His love for us. And so after this nearly incomprehensible manifestation of Jesus, the God-man, unveiled in all His glory as the King of kings who loves His kingdom people with all His heart, as he descends from that mount with his disciples, he's teaching them further. And he tells them not to tell anyone about what they saw until he's resurrected. And I guarantee you, they still didn't get it all yet. But they were getting it more and more. And he knew he was taking them with him to Jerusalem, where he would perform his greatest act of love for them. His greatest act of love for us. The single greatest act of love in all eternity. Will you follow him now? As we come to the end of the season of Epiphany and enter into the season of Lent, will you follow him there? Will you deny yourself for him? Are you willing to lose your life for his sake? Do you trust him that he's worth it? We may not hesitate to affirm that quite quickly, but I challenge you to slow down, count the cost, and consider, really, do, do you really believe in Him and trust Him enough to lose your life for His sake? Will you bow your knee to the King of Kings and serve Him in His kingdom, which is already manifested here and now? Will you take up your cross daily in this season and beyond and follow Him who took up His cross for you? I'm here to tell you today, it won't be easy, but He is worth the cost. And in Him we have the assured hope of resurrection and that in all things we are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, this glimpse that you've given us, God, of, of your glory unveiled before us. We ask, God, that you would, you would help us to meditate and dwell in this image, God, and what it means to us as we prepare to 
to walk with you through the season of Lent as we anticipate your coming passion and your resurrection. Help us to remember, God, that you're not only fully God, but fully man, and that you fully love us with a love that we can not even comprehend. Ask God that you'd help us each to meditate on these points and help our love for you to increase as we give ourselves to you. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.